From the newsrooms of the City Morning Herald and The Age, this is Please Explain. I'm Samantha Selinger-Morris. It's Thursday, December 14th. For months, Melbourne's underworld has been plagued by escalating violence, bashings, a public execution, even the desecration of the grave of one crime boss's sister. Firebombings have also become increasingly common, whereby shops are set alight and gutted by flames. One of the main targets, tobacco stores. So many have been hit that a new era of gangland warfare in Melbourne has gained its own moniker, the Tobacco Wars. For more than eight years, my colleague, Law and Justice Editor Chris Fetalago, has been following one of the men who is understood to be at the centre of these wars. Because of suppression orders put in place by a court, his identity and actions could never be released. Until now. Today, Chris Fetalago joins me to discuss the rise of Kazem Hamad and the illegal tobacco trade fueling Melbourne's underworld violence. So, Chris, over the last nine months, there have been a series of attacks on tobacco shops across Melbourne, so many that people have actually started referring to a quote-unquote tobacco war that's been playing out on the city's streets. So tell me about what's been happening. Well, these firebombings, they started in about the end of March, and we were seeing uh, sometimes multiple ones a week, sometimes multiple ones in a weekend. And they were all over the city, you know, all points of the compass. In fact, there's been a few interstate as well. And basically, men would drive up in the middle of the night, usually ram the front of the store and burn these places. Tobacco wars are certainly escalating in Melbourne. A store in the city's north firebombed for a second time. The 28th shop targeted so far. Innocent victims have been caught in the crossfire of Melbourne's escalating tobacco wars. An ongoing feud between Middle Eastern crime gangs. A specialist task force has been set up to combat Victoria's tobacco shop wars with And it just kept happening and happening. And sometimes the owners that would have multiple shops that would be targeted in the span of a couple of days. In other occasions, there would be one shop that got targeted three times. And there's been at least 30 fires so far linked to this tobacco war. The majority of them have been tobacco shops, but there's also been a restaurant or two along the way. And they don't seem to be stopping. And so, Chris, can you help us understand why is this happening? Why are tobacco shops in particular being targeted like this? What we're looking at here is basically drug gangs that are fighting over tobacco. And they're fighting over tobacco because tobacco is a low-risk crime with a high return. And they can take that tobacco money and then invest it in drug shipments where they make the, the really big money. And then bound up in all of this is also a lot of personal animosity between the people involved. They're settling business scores, but they're also settling personal scores. It's, uh, yeah, there's a confluence of circumstances about why they're taking each other's heads off. And so how does this illegal tobacco trade actually work? I mean, where is the tobacco coming from and how does it get in? Because I understand that this is happening all across the country, but that the situation is particularly bad in Victoria. So basically what happens is these illegal importers are filling containers with, I think, up to 14 or 15 million cigarettes. They're filling them in Dubai. They're filling them in China with these kind of cheap or knockoff brands there. Manchester is a common one. Double Happiness is another common one in China. They put millions of these cigarettes in a container. They smuggle them into the country, and then they need to sell them off. Right now, there's a massive fight over who gets to control the sale of cigarettes 
in this town and in this state. Uh, it has something to do with the fact that millions and millions of cigarettes are being smuggled into the country in container ships, and they need a distribution point for that. And so they're basically either controlling the tobacco shops or forcing the tobacco shops to sell these cigarettes. They're usually small family-owned places unless they're part of a larger chain, and there's not many larger chains. And so the market is largely small. And the extortion that goes on is not subtle and it's not hard to do. They basically walk into a shop and say, you work for us now. You're going to sell our cigarettes. You're going to pay a tax. If you don't, you'll get burnt. And if you keep going and you don't listen, you're going to get shot or someone you care about is going to get shot. So it's it's not a sophisticated scam. It's really quite blunt. But because there's so many tobacco shops um, and it's so easy to stand over regular people, um, who aren't going to run to the police because they're afraid or because perhaps they're already selling illegal tobacco. It's just a matter of switching who it is that's providing it to them. They're really, really easy to take control of. And Chris, is part of the reason that this underground tobacco market is thriving because the price of legal cigarettes has ballooned? I mean, this could mean, I guess, that smokers might be seeking out cheaper illegal products. Well, the irony of all this is the government increases the tax on cigarettes to stop people from smoking. And what's ended up happening is that the higher the tax get, the more profitable it is for these guys to smuggle cigarettes. So a standard pack of 20, which might cost upwards of $45, you can buy a pack of 20 of these illegal cigarettes for somewhere between 15 and 25. And just how lucrative is this illegal tobacco industry? If you look at it on a per pack basis, basically these illegal cigarettes can be bought in Dubai or in China for about 2 or $3 a pack. They're bringing them in the country. It's not hard and not expensive to smuggle them. And then they're selling them for 25 It's big money. Now you replicate that across dozens of packs sold every day in a shop. We're talking about millions and millions of dollars in illicit profits every week. And are we seeing this because essentially it's easier to make money with cigarettes than drugs? Because I, I read in your story in August, you had an underworld figure tell you that, you know, what's the penalty for getting caught making $4 million on tobacco compared to $4 million on cocaine or meth, more than a decade in jail? Exactly. It's a low risk option to generate enormous amounts of revenue. Not very heavy prison sentences are handed out for these types of crimes, smuggling or selling tobacco. They're actually quite light in the grand scheme of things because it's not as harmful as selling drugs, obviously, but it makes it a very easy entry point for, for any type of criminal gang to get into. You just need to bring them in and sell them. There's not a lot of attention on this type of crime because it's a low impact crime. So the state police or the Australian Federal Police or Australian Border Force can't devote a lot of resources to it when they're more worried about people smuggling or um, illicit firearms or drug trafficking. Okay. And coming back to the wars that are playing out over this incredibly lucrative industry, do we know who's behind all of this? I mean, who is behind all of this illegal trade? Right now, there's two primary players that are effectively at war with each other. One is a long-standing Melbourne crime family. Police allege that the other party involved in this, who's only recently been exposed in the media, is Kazem Hamad, who's a, a career criminal based in Melbourne originally, just finished a prison sentence for drug trafficking earlier this year, has been deported from the country, yet has become the opposite side, the rivalry in this tobacco war. And it's him versus this crime family, essentially. We'll be right back. 
Okay, Chris, I'd love to turn to one of the central figures in these turf wars over illegal tobacco, and this is Kazem Hamad. So when did you first learn about him, and how did you first come across him? Well, he kind of burst on the scene very suddenly for us as media in about April of 2015. There was an underworld execution that occurred in the western suburbs of Melbourne. It was quite brazen and unusual. We hadn't seen one like this in a little while. Paramedics performed CPR, but the father of six was pronounced dead in his family's driveway. Kazem Hamad and his brother Khaled Abu Hasna had been driving home late one morning. They pulled into the driveway of the Western Suburban House and someone jumped out and opened fire into the car and killed Khaled, who's also known as KK. Khaled Abu Hasna had just arrived at his mother's home. As he stepped out of the car, he was ambushed. He was shot multiple times. It would appear at this stage that this was a targeted attack on the uh, victim. But they didn't kill Kazem Hamad. And that was really the first time as crime reporters at the age we'd heard about this guy, that he was, you know, the witness slash intended target. And we knew nothing about him. And then we started asking questions. Well, who is he? And his name kept coming up and coming up as this sort of rising figure in Melbourne's underworld that people really feared and were constantly talking about. So tell me about Kazem Hamad and his operations in Melbourne, and what is it that he is suspected of having done? So basically, Kaz came to Australia in 1998 as a 14-year-old, as a refugee with his family from Iraq, fleeing Saddam Hussein. In terms of the things that we've come to understand about how he became the criminal that he became, there's a couple landmark incidents. One was uh, he was sentenced in 2011 over a kidnapping for money racket. Now, one of the interesting things about that is it was only one of four that he actually was charged and convicted for. In the other three instances of the bashing or kidnapping for money, the witnesses were too scared to proceed. In 2019, he was sentenced to eight years jail for drug trafficking. He only recently was released from prison in about the middle of this year. And because he would never become a citizen, he was deported to Iraq immediately. Since his release from prison, Kaz's name has come up time and time again in a long list of really uh, violent crimes, the tobacco wars being the primary one. And then, of course, there's the uh, the attempted robbery and planned desecration of the body of a, the sister of a gangland boss, George Morogi. Um, that occurred on the 30th of July of this year, where a couple of people attempted to break into the mausoleum where she was laid to rest. The intention was to basically drag her body off a they couldn't do it because the lift on the second floor of the mausoleum was broken. Um, and what we've been told is that the intention was was to desecrate her body, to um, to dismember it as, a, as effectively a torture for, the, for a rival crime family. Police suspect Hamad's involved in these crimes, but it's worth noting that he's, um, he's not been charged and uh, police are still continuing investigations. Right. And you have known all of this and about Hamad's alleged involvement in this for many years but there were suppression orders in place, which meant you couldn't report on it. So can you tell me about that and what you understand the court's rationale for that suppression order was? So basically, when we came to realize that this person was a player in um, effectively in April of 2015 with the murder of his brother-in-law, uh, at that time, he was he had been charged with drug trafficking. And the judge in the case had decided that, you know, with the attempted hit, effectively, um, his life was in danger. And so more publicity could only increase that risk. So the, the magistrate at that time issued a suppression order, basically saying we can't identify this person or his whereabouts or what he was involved in. 
And in one form or another, that suppression order was rolled over or extended for eight and a half years and didn't end until Tuesday morning at around 12.01 a.m. of this week. And so where is Kazem Hamad now? Do we know? Well, after he was deported from Australia following his prison sentence, he was deported to his native Iraq. But he wasn't there very long. He moved almost immediately to Dubai which um, allowed him to enter the country despite his extensive criminal history, like two decades worth, and his, his ban from Australia. And uh, he took up residence there, and he was living pretty well, and he was directing his, his operations from, from Dubai. And then somewhere along the lines, the state and the federal authorities got fed up with what was happening back here, and they must have made some kind of representations to the United Arab government because around the early September, he was kicked out. He was sent back to Iraq. As far as anyone knows, he's in Iraq right now in Baghdad, but the police aren't saying where they think he is. And Chris, for people listening to this episode, they might be wondering why they should even care about someone like Kazem Hamad. And I asked you about this on the phone yesterday and you had a really interesting answer. So can you tell me about that? Yeah, look, I think this is important for two reasons. One, there's a lot of fires being started. And a couple of these fires have taken place in shops or restaurants below where people live in in basically high-rise or medium-density housing. And if it goes on long enough, on a long enough timeline, someone's going to get hurt. They had to have one high-rise apartment complex evacuated twice in a weekend, essentially, because the fires, two different fires set in a restaurant in Docklands that are believed to be related to this series. And dozens of people had to flee their homes in the middle of the night just in case. The other thing is, this is going to be a persistent and continuing thorn in the paw of law enforcement. How do you stop someone you can't get to? How do you arrest someone who is effectively beyond your jurisdiction in another country, a country that is unstable and difficult to deal with from a government-to-government perspective? So there's no reason for him to stop, and there's no reason way that the police can stop him. So this is just going to keep going on and on. And what we've seen in the past from these underworld wars is that they only stop when two things happen. Either all the players are arrested or all the players are dead. These things just go on and on and on until there's some kind of conclusion that way. And that's going to be pretty hard to arrest him if he's in Baghdad. And finally, Chris, I wanted to come back to where we started this conversation with the tobacco wars, because I'm wondering if there was better regulation of this very lucrative illegal tobacco trade, would that actually help to put a stop to all of this? Or do you think if it wasn't tobacco, do you fear it would be something else and these gangland wars are just here to stay? Well, I think these syndicates have cleverly exploited a loophole, particularly in Victoria. When you buy booze or you gamble at a pokey, it's all regulated. You have to have a license to set it up. People are checking on what you're doing. Are you doing it right? When it comes to tobacco, uh, there's no licensing. Anyone can open a tobacco shop. And if, if anyone's lived in a neighborhood for long enough, you can walk down the street now and see tobacco shops and vape shops where none existed two, three years ago. They're everywhere. I mean, there's five in my neighborhood. That's a lot of tobacco to be selling. And there's no regulation. Anybody can open these things up and start flogging cigarettes. So if the government is able to close some of these places down, it makes less places for them to infiltrate, less places for them to control, less places for them to sell their product or extort attacks from people, less opportunities for violence. But that being said, price of cigarettes are only going to keep going up 
And as long as they can get those cigarettes through the border and find a distribution point to sell them, they're going to make massive amounts of money and they're going to keep doing what they're doing. Well, Chris, clearly this is an issue we'll be watching closely. So thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Today's episode of Please Explain was produced by Julia Carcatzel. Our executive producer is Ruby Schwartz. Please Explain is a production of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. If you enjoy the show and want more of our journalism, subscribe to our newspapers today. It's the best way to support what we do. Search The Age or smh.com.au forward slash subscribe. I'm Samantha Selinger-Morris. This is Please Explain. Thanks for listening. 